to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Today, I am delighted to welcome Maggie Simpson, who is the Director General for the Rail Freight Group. Maggie is a passionate advocate for rail freight in the UK and joins me on the virtual couch to talk us through her career story to date and also her three wishes for the future of the rail freight industry in particular. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Maggie Simpson, good morning and welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast. I'm absolutely delighted that you've agreed to be my guest. Thanks, Nina. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and to speak to you. Thank you. We'll we'll introduce you properly, although I'm absolutely 100% confident that anyone tuning into this, certainly from the rail industry, will know exactly who you are, because you are one of those people who who I think everybody knows who Maggie is. Um, So official title, Director General for the Rail Freight Group, which you've been for just over 10 years, I think. That's right, yeah. Um, And 17 years with Rail Freight Group. Um, an OBE for services to rail freight, which you got in the Queen's Birthday Honours list in March 2020. And also, I would imagine this is a very important role for you as well as trustee for the Railway Benefit Fund. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's uh, something that gives me great fulfilment, but also, you know, a sense that you, you're helping people who are in need in our industry. And, and that's something that's very important to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to ask you, that's kind of, that's as it is today, that's what Maggie does in in terms of um, the day-to-day role. What I'd love to do is wind back the clock to the very beginning. Um, I know you did a degree in mathematical engineering, didn't you, at Loughborough? So coming from there and choosing what career was the right career for you, Take us right back, Maggie. What what happened when you were at uni? How did you decide what to do and where to go? Yeah, back to the 1990s. So uh, pre-mobile phone, pre-internet, uh, pre all of those things. And, you know, I've got friends, we've all got friends who who knew what they wanted to do with their careers, you know, and, and they doggedly drove towards that, you know, successfully or otherwise. But for me, it's it was never really a plan. Um, I just wanted to do things that I found interesting, I suppose. And when, when I took my degree, I decided to take a, a course that got a sandwich year, year in industry because I wanted to, you know, to get stuck in and, uh, you know, do something that was a bit more practical. And I, and I took a year working uh, for British Gas, as it was at the time, round about the dawn of, of gas privatisation, really. But we were, I was working in their research and development centre and we were working on Um, reliability modelling of the gas compressor network, so where they bring the gas offshore and squash it up to put it into the the, the distribution networks. And we were looking at uh, at how reliable they were and how many of them they needed in consequence. So so I did that for a year, enjoyed that, and went back and finished my degree. And at the end of that, I thought, well, I could probably do a job in in that. You know, I've got a bit of experience. And there was a, I think it still exists, a little trade association for practitioners in reliability analysis. And they had a little paper handbook pre-internet. And I thought I could apply to some companies there. And being a a student and, you know, a little bit tight with my money, I decided I'd send my CV off in alphabetical order. So 
I wrote to all the ones beginning with A and I got a job <laughs> with a company beginning with A. So that, that worked. <laughs> and so that was how I got my first job, really, by being tight with the money. And right. uh, that company beginning with A was a, a consultancy called RCD Little, who were big in safety and still us big in safety, reliability, safety management. They'd spent most of the last decade working in the oil and gas industries on the back of big you know, the big accidents like Piper Alpha, um, you know, the sort of catastrophes of the 80s, uh, and sort of, you know, therefore the early development of safety management system, risk assessment, and and, and they were beginning to, to bring those skills into the rail industry. So on the back of, obviously, Clapham and terrible accidents like that, but also being, by this point, 1992, you know, on the edge of rail privatisation, so the implementation of, of new approaches to safety management systems. So... So as I landed in September 92, the first railway assignments were beginning to come in. And because I wasn't a chemical engineer, like many of the people in the office, I sort of, you know, well, as the office junior, I got shoved onto whatever job they needed people <laughs> on, let's be honest. But I ended up doing quite a lot of, of railway projects, right, uh, including a huge number of training courses that we started to roll out in risk assessment and safety management across the the industry as it was shaping up in the in the privatized world and we, you know we were out on on the road all over railway offices and i think what 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 won me over really was the people because we were meeting people from you know senior managers through to practitioners sometimes people who'd come in from you know operational roles you know right across the piece and some of them were pretty suspicious about risk assessment and safety management some of them embraced it but to a person they were kind they were generous with your time they didn't mind me as you know a shippy young student in my 20s and a woman at that coming in and and, you know helping more sometimes running training courses they were respectful and it just sort of won me over as an industry and I found it really interesting Mm. um and as well as the training, we were doing projects, you know, we were in Hong Kong, we were working for Irish Rail, a whole load of different projects in different things. And so that sense that it was an industry that was going places, you know, yeah. both domestically and across the world was also part of it. So I did that for a number of years. Um, and eventually, I think, you know, the consultancy ran its time for me you know I got a bit tired of having to meet sales targets and so I, I wanted to look for something else um and this time it wasn't alphabetical order that got me it was a train ride really? um, okay. to, yeah coming back from London one day up to Cambridge where I was living reading somebody's evening standard over their shoulder uh saw a job ad when they got off I nicked the paper ripped it out and that was how I ended up at opera after the office of passenger really? okay what a great um, story. I love stuff like that. Yeah. As you can see, not the pre-planned career, you know. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so I ended up at Opera in 1998, probably, I think. Um, and they, you know, by that point, Opera had franchised all the companies. They were all out in the private sector. Yeah. And it was really in round one of contract management. So the job of Opera was to make sure that these new businesses did what they promised basically so they yeah. you know they bought the franchise they would made commitments of things they were going to do uh, and you know we we were there to hold their feet to the fire and make sure they, they, they did that really so okay. 
so it was you know in, in a time point of view it was great because these were new businesses there was promises you know the cracks which began to appear later hadn't appeared at that point you know we yeah. were involved in the ordering of pendolinos we were involved in the opening of west ham station lts or c2c as they became you know had a brand new fleet of trains it's really exciting and as opera you know we, we're very light touch really when you look at the number of people who are involved in that role today mm. um at the Department of Transport, you know, within a month of landing, I'd got Virgin West Coast and C2C. And um, my colleague, who many years later I married, uh, had Virgin Cross Country. And, you know, right. that was the two of us managed those three together, really. So it, it gave you, um, you know, a really interesting angle on the question. You saw a lot of the railway, a quite light touch management structure, but you began to understand how this new world was working, what the tension points were. Yeah. Um, some, you know, looking back on it, I think you could see where it might have started, you know, where it was going to creak. It didn't really in my time, but um, but it was an exciting time to be there. It sounds it. that it's, it's kind of this blank piece of paper stuff, isn't it? And I would imagine the way you've described it there, this excitement because it's all new. It's mm. a it's a brave new world, and it's like exciting things are happening because it's all new. The the new businesses that have been set up to run the railway, and as you say, it's kind of that that the heady days of the early the kind of the honeymoon period we might call it before, <laughs> before it all starts to kind of creak, which is mm. uh, which is a great word that you've used there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know, commercial freedom was was a big part of that. You know, these were commercial businesses, and they could look at what they'd acquired and deploy that commercial freedom into it. And obviously, that that's something that we've lost over time. But that was quite exciting, really, for me. Yeah, you know, understanding how those businesses viewed viewed the world and where they could put their money and make those investments and make them work. Really. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was busy doing that when. You know, when powers that be decided that OPRAF would become the Shadow Strategic Rail Authority. Mm. And I had a, a temporary, a little temporary job bag carrying for the then chairman, Alistair Morton, right. uh, when he arrived. And, you know, it was it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that he wasn't the kind of man who needed a bag carrier, really. If he wanted <laughs> right. to do it, just get it done. So so I ended up um, working out from his office, which was in a different building, with, with not quite enough to do. Right. And at that point, people were being recruited into the shadow SRA who in, you know, in the fullness of time would fulfil the extra functions that SRA acquired over OPRAF. And one of those was freight. And one day I strolled into the office of Julia Clark, the newly appointed freight director. And I said, Julia, I'm bored. Have you got anything I can do? And she just looked at me and laughed and said, oh, yes, Maggie, you know. And that was how I came into freight. So, you know, wow. this of my career coincidences, really. Yeah. Um, and of course, once you start on freight, you know, what's not to like? It's got all that excitement. It had got that, um, you know, that commercial angle. It's the underdog. So you feel that, you you know, you're, you're working the cause. There was everything to play for because, you know, the newly privatised businesses had, had been established. And actually they were sort of saying, you know, paraphrase but you thought freight was going to die did you well think again okay you know, and, right. and they were, were shaping up those businesses for the future as well so so it was something completely new for me I'd never really thought about rail freight till that point but you know once you've got it you've got it yeah 
it's kind of it's a bit like um as you're describing it i think your your description of of when you were working at arthur d little and you're going out and meeting people through those training courses and um and what you said was it was what what won you over was the people and how kind they 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 were how generous with their time that's my own experience nearly 10 years ago now coming into the uk rail industry um and having that same experience mm. i think when you start to to kind of go into it in more detail and you realize how exciting how interesting how commercial people need to be actually it's kind of you can't float around with a piece of paper all day you've got to you've, you've actually got mm-hmm. to be really focused in terms of making it work that i think that gets hold of you in a way that people who are outside the industry don't know yeah you don't know it until you're in it and mm-hmm. then once you're in it you never it's very rare i think the people i speak to on a day-to-day basis once they're in rail transport actually they don't want to go out again they don't want to go anywhere else because there's there's a lot to do for a start um so that kind of once you've peeked under the bonnet of the rail freight industry it's kind of as you say so much to do but a different type of approach to the passenger railway yeah, absolutely. And, and so when when the SRO went live in 2001, they acquired the freight grants that the Department of Transport were doing, and in fact still do to this day, as I partially now. And I got asked to lead that team. So at that point, you know, commercially it was, because I'd got money, yeah, a team, we've got a grant scheme that we could deploy to help businesses. And people, the people that we were giving those grants to, they weren't you know, EWS or train operators exclusively. I mean, obviously they they could get grants, but it was the end customers, the wagon manufacturers, the people who were building terminals. And, you know, there were far, far fewer rail freight terminals than there are today. So, mm. you know, we were putting seed funding in effect into those facilities. And many of them now, when I go around the network today, they still exist. Yeah. And I think I put some grant into that no, or, you know, we yeah. helped that come and you know, as a team, really, we had about two years before the money dried up and SRA started to be folded up again. But actually, yeah. in that time, we deployed money and, you know, we, we were a bit stricter with it, actually, than the DFT had been before. But, you know, I can think of a, a huge number of schemes that, that we assisted in that time. And that brought me right up close to the, the commercial players. And it made me realise that you know, the railway isn't just about the people who pull the trains, as important as they are. It's about everybody else. And particularly in freight, you're in a quarry, you're in a port, you're in a terminal, you're in a warehouse, you're in some other kind of production facility, you're dealing with steel, with paper, with recycling, whatever. And and this is an ecosystem that isn't isn't a railway ecosystem to most people, mm. but it is because it's unified around around the the way that they use the railway to support their business so that was really exciting for me because you know I'd have done passenger railway and passengers are pretty boring aren't they really (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness I'm saying nothing Maggie I love it that I just dropped that one in we'll see what comments we get back to that one (laughs) yeah I mean obviously not as individual people but collectively (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she digs herself out of that hole. Absolutely. But, uh, 
Yeah. I think the thing about you is, Maggie, you can get away with saying stuff like that because you are held with such high esteem and respect in the industry. Um, and I think the other thing as well that we absolutely know that if we cut you down the middle, it's got rail freight running all the way through yeah. it because you are that you, I don't think there could be a more passionate advocate for for this part of the industry. So, um, yeah, I love that. I love that passion you've got for it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I suppose, you know, that stayed with me, really, because although um, SRA folded and I was, by that point, I was expecting uh, my eldest child, my maternity leave, the SRA folded back into DFT. I extracted myself from that, again, without a plan, because that's me. Uh, and after about, you know, a year of baby wrangling, I was starting to think, oh, God, <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? And Tony Barclay, the chair of the Rail Freight Group, rang me up and he said, um, our policy guys just left. Could you help me out for a few months till we find somebody new? And I was like, oh, I haven't got any childcare. And the nursery at the end of the road had got two days. So that's what I did. You know, we did two days. And, um, you know, then number two came along, took a bit of time out and went back after that two days. And it was really, you know, after that, that I started to take a much bigger role in the industry. But, you know, when I was doing those two days, I was doing, you know, the hardcore sort of policy work. So, yeah. That got me into, you know, access charging and some of the technical bits of the industry like that, how it's regulated, mm -hmm. periodic reviews, access, all of those sorts of things. So it, it filled in that sort of knowledge knowledge gap about those those sort of system pieces, if you yeah. like. And obviously working for Tony, you know, is an inspirational guy to work for. So, you know, you very quickly start to learn how to do that influencing, how to engage people and, and you know build build the case for what it is that you need to be achieving so mm. so when he decided to step back a little bit in in 2012 I sort of took up the helm and he eventually retired as chairman a few years after that so yeah. so that that was the journey really and here we are and here we are and I think um the my my from my outside perspective looking in when I I see you obviously I see you on the speaker circuit um, and and at various different events and my kind of take on what your day-to-day -day role is as I said from that outside perspective is it's very much about influencing it's very much about engaging and you have got quite a few different stakeholder groups there um, in terms of people that, that you are engaging with on a regular basis it does that reflect what a real life um, week in the life of the DG of the Rail Freight Group looks like, Maggie. Is there what what is there to it? What does a week in the life look like? So, I mean, obviously there are some bits. You know, we are we are a tiny little business, so there are seven bodies that add up to about three full time equivalents. Everyone is part time. Um, several of the people who work with me are semi retired, or they you know, have other other roles as well. Um, we all work flexibly. We're, we're all over the country. So, so of course, that means, you know, running the business takes quite well, easy in a way because everybody gets on with it. But on the other hand, we're all yeah. a bit, you know, we're all covering each other's jobs and doing bits and pieces for that. And we have a big events program, which the team look after, but you want to oversee that. Um, mo you know, we, we must do an event a month on average, probably, whether that's a webinar or a conference or a big event, a big awards dinner or you know Christmas lunch or whatever. So so th there's some stuff about running the business that, that obviously you need to be doing. Mm. Of course, you also need to be talking to your members. And that's, you know, that is the most important thing because, um, you know, 
let's be honest, you, you, your members pay your bills, don't they? You know, they pay your salary and, and yeah. their input is what drives what we do. So if they are worrying about something, you know, whether that's um, road form or decarbonisation or the market or energy prices, if they're worried about that, that's something we, we need to be thinking about. Is this something we should be intervening in? Is it something we can signpost some information to them should we be talking to government about this or mm. network rail or or somebody else so, so being with your members and that's a mixture of uh sort of you know for, we have regular forums with members in particular parts of, of rail freight so intermodal forum construction forum a board policy meeting and things like that which mm. help help me to understand what's going on what's important you know what what's driving what's driving their anxieties or their worries or their positivity, depending on, on what that topic is. Yeah. And then I suppose you, you know, you've got to reflect on what I'm going to do about that. You know, so there are some things that you would want to start to proactively be raising. And that might be either raising it with, um, you know, with, with those other stakeholders, or it might be raising it with impact your members, you know, because actually, Sometimes it's about encouraging your members to do something or engage with a programme or look at something or provide some input. And then, of course, there is that, you know, that sort of reactive stuff. So consultations arrive or somebody decides to do something, you need to find a position on that and and go out. But you're absolutely right, because there's no point in doing any of that if you're not going to tell people about it. Mm. You know, if if you're going to have the most beautifully crafted policy position, but if you lock it in a wardrobe, you're not going to, you know, deliver change. So. So you need to be out delivering change. And if you're going to do that, you can't, you know, you can't kind of spring from nowhere and mm. suddenly go, big problem, big problem, because people are going to go, who's that nothing? <laughs> you know. So you've got to have got the relationships already established. You need people yeah. to understand your sector, what it's about, why it matters, what's important, why, why does what rail freight does matter to government or to the industry or or to network rail or to whoever. Yeah you've got to have all that in place before you land with your problem Mm. or your issue because you know you need people to have the background and to trust that what you're saying is is you know reflects a real life situation and an evolution of a topic so yeah so so you have to be constantly doing that that place that, that building that place um and it's not always a negative actually and often it's a positive you know this is how we can help this is what we're doing. This is why I'm telling you about this good news, mm. because you don't want to always be the one saying it's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem because it isn't always a problem. You exactly. Know, you yeah. Yeah. And there's loads of good stuff happening. Yeah. And and we and, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for sharing everything that's going on mm. so that we that there's so much to learn. And when you're sharing it, other people will be able to contribute in in different ways that maybe you hadn't even thought of. That kind of sharing and communicating and letting people know what's happening on the positive side, as you've said, so that as and when you need some help, because there's a there's a challenge or there's an issue where we need to kind of pull people together and rally the troops, then they're more likely to do that if they understand what the, the what the position is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess I guess the some of the things you're saying it's it's feeling to me like we're going very nicely in to the next part of the podcast conversation which is around where Nina gets her magic wand out and she grants you three wishes um and in terms of looking at 
the future of the industry. I think it's fair to say um, that there are a few challenges and issues knocking around and we've got a very, very uncertain political situation as we're recording this today in the middle of October um, 2022. So kind of it feels like on the one hand, well, we've got it's all to play for, um, but we've also got some shifting sands in terms of, of uncertainty. With your huge knowledge, Maggie, of the of the rail industry and particularly freight, if I was to give you those three wishes to say, what would you want to be able to future-proof the industry or what would you like to happen next? What would those three wishes be? So I think, you know, the, the top thing really at the moment, I think, is is economic volatility. And that, you know, I mean that both in terms of the global position, the national position, and then the railway position as well. Yeah. So, you know, what what are my members worried about at the moment? They're worried about a, a generalised drop-off in demand. So people are just not buying as much stuff. People are not building as much stuff. And whilst the rail is holding its own really well, you know, you, you can't outrun a recession forever. Mm. So road volumes are are dropping off in some places and um, the autumn peak has not been is not really very busy compared to other autumn peaks right. um, and that's worrying people and so that is about you know the global and the domestic economic policy and of course real worries now about spending cuts and the impact on on the railways from that um, particularly in you know the context of the next control period and what settlement network rail will get and what that will mean both for you know the actual amount of money but also sentiment yeah you know because it's very easy for people I mean it's a lazy argument but it's a very easy argument to say well we haven't got enough money so you can't run any more trains yeah you know and I, we really can't have that because even despite that economic volatility we've got customers who want to use more rail freight mm. So what we've got to navigate is a situation where even if we haven't got enough money and even if demand is difficult, we can still get customers attracted to using rail. And they are because their boardrooms are assertively pushing on sustainability and they want to decarbonize their supply chains and rail is a big part of that. So and that doesn't you know, that isn't going to change. You know, even if our government takes a slightly different path around net zero, the pressure from investors is is going to stay because this is a global piece about climate change that is, you know, in desperate need of fixing. So, yeah. so those customers are still going to want more rail freight. Mm. They might want it a little bit more slowly than they would have done if it, we hadn't had a downturning economy. Yeah. And it might be a little bit more difficult to get those new trains running if the funding isn't there, but we've absolutely got to push on that. So the economy, number one. Yeah. Secondly, I think systems, because they're so often overlooked, you know, because what, what you know, we're great in the rail industry. We've all been around it long enough. You know, there's a problem. Art must be the structure. You know, it's yeah. because we nationalised, privatised, not integrated, unintegrated, regionalised, devolved, whatever it is. And actually, yeah. probably needed to replace the system. You know. Yeah. So we run the rail freight network off systems which are older than me. Right. You know, but you kind of think, well, what would Amazon do? Yeah, what would Amazon do? You know, and they probably yeah. wouldn't have a rail review. They'd probably just buy a new system. Mm. And, and you know this is not uniquely true to UK railways. You can see it all over the world. But actually, there are ways we could grab those core systems. You know, and it, some of that's big stuff like ECTS, which you know I'm glad we're getting up, starting to get on with now. But actually, just yeah. some of the underlying core things that 
you know, as a passenger, it frustrates you day in, day out because the ticket system doesn't do what you want, but actually you scale that up across a lot of things. So so trying to grab those core systems, modernising how we do things. Mm. And in, in freight, that also means some of the ways we work are, you know, a little bit antiquated, some of the standards and systems. You know, there's just been some brilliant work done on couple of strengths so how much weight can you put in the wagon before the train would pull itself apart in effect and and that work's shown that you know i think something like a third of the wagons could have an uplift in in weight without doing anything it's just because a standard that wasn't that hasn't been looked at for decades okay when you look at the standard against the modern couplers you go we could you know we could get a gain here yeah different ways of looking at it yeah yeah i love that question what would amazon do Mm. um there is one isn't there that's that's i i guess was the pre-runner to that but probably doesn't wash as well in the in the rail industry which is what would audrey do (laughs) (laughs) what audrey hepburn would do is probably completely irrelevant in this context but i love the concept of that Mm -hmm. question it's kind of okay yeah if we were the senior leadership team at amazon what would we be doing now yeah yeah, oh, perfect. People say to me, Love if we don't have enough money, which route should we shut? I'm like, no, 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 no. What would Amazon do? You know, they wouldn't do that, would they? They're, they wouldn't shut wouldn't the route. Say, Sorry, no, no. customer in rural parts of the country, I can't be bothered to serve you anymore. They'd just find a different way. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Love that, Maggie. Really love that. And I think, you know, the other one that I always put with that is, what would I do if it was my money? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, let's, let's look at yeah. this. What I use I that quite a lot in my business. Yeah. 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 But it is your money. So, yeah, yeah. It, exactly. <laughs> do with the team you know if there's a if there's an idea for something we want to do or there's you know whatever and it's kind of okay if it was your money would you be spending it um and it's it's a great question because it really focuses your mind in terms of do I really want to do this how much do I want to do it yeah I love it so I think I've got one left, my third one. You have, you one. have. My third one is about sustainability because actually, you know, the industry is doing some brilliant work on this. Uh, and every time I hear people talk about what they're doing, I get more and more inspired. Mm. So we had we had a presentation the other week at a conference from Network Rail's Lead on Biodiversity. And, you know, amongst a lot of other good stuff that he said and, you know, really brilliant presentation. But, uh, you know, one of it was kind of those sort of like grotty weeds that you've got in your terminal and depot. Yeah. That's biodiversity. You know, and there's okay. a name for it, which I can't remember now, it's a mosaic. But, you know, for me, it just looked like weeds. But to him, that, you know, that was a joyous bit of biodiversity. Wow, okay. And there's so much, I think, that we could be doing in, in, the, in the wide arc of sustainability. Obviously, mm. decarbonisation is really important, really difficult. Modal shift is really important in that place. Mm. And some of these things are, are difficult and they need a lot of investment. But actually, with that, there's lots of things that we could be doing which don't need as much investment, but, you know, could really help place the railway as that sustainable mode of transport, which we which we know it is, but it doesn't always kind of get placed as that in people's minds, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a real concern here, Maggie, about as we're going through all of the political change that we're going through and we've got, obviously, we've got the William Shapps plan for rail i don't know if it's now will you just williams again actually i'm saying that but anyway what it is it's the plan for rail um and rail reform Mm -hmm. and all of these question marks over what the future looks like and how much investment will be available so when i hear people describing things like you've just talked about in relation to sustainability it's not just the headline stuff 
in relation to sustainability. It's looking at the whole system in a different way to see how we can make improvements. And it's that kind of, um, it's the innovation and the research and development stuff that that I have a really big concern about, that we start to lose that Mm. because the investment that's coming in is just allowing us to keep the lights on. And there's and there isn't any left, yeah. To do the to do the kind of can I call it the clever stuff? Mm-hmm. I don't even know in some cases whether it is the clever stuff. It's just allowing people to. Um, I think management consultants call it sandboxing, don't they? It's yeah. kind of just sit there and play for a while and see what happens. And that's a it's a big concern, I think, in terms of us being able to move into a future where we're really contributing to sustainability as we should be doing as an industry but if we're not being given the investment the time the space to play Mm -hmm. with it will we ever make the the strides forward that we need to yeah and you know it's a really good question and you know it's easy it's easy for me as a a campaigner to say these things you know I'm not the one with with the budget accountability for for how many people we have or don't have I mean I think you you know we don't know what will happen with rail reform um, and I think there are you know, there are elements of that that even without legislation, we could make good progress on, to be honest. I think, yeah. you know, from my point of view, the legislation which puts passenger and train together is always the bit that I'm most nervous about, to be honest. Yeah. So I think some of the other guiding mind uh, roles are probably things that we could be getting on with yeah, you know, to a greater extent, despite despite any delay or indeed cancellation of, of that programme. But mm. You know, we do have to learn to navigate a world where there is less money and we need to be really steely focused on saying, and what is the future of the, you know, how do we have a railway which is is still a core part of, of the UK? Yeah. Um, you know, if you, if, you, if you wind back in time to the birth of the railways, you know, the railways put the canals out of business for 200 years. Yes. I mean, yeah. if you look at the canals today, they're a, you know, a hugely important leisure facility. Yeah. You know, you've got running, you've got cycling, you've got angling, you've got boating, you've got biodiversity, but it's yeah. taken a long time to get them back into that position where they're still playing that vibrant role. And we can't afford for the railways to have, you know, 200 years in the dark place before no, they come out with a role. So what is the Absolutely. role? If we've got less money, we've really got to fight for that and make the most of it. Yeah. But, you know, from a freight point of view, I think, you know, I think that's quite easy, really. Mm. Do we need to move stuff around? Yes, we do. Do we want to make less carbon? Yes, we do. You know, do we want to have diverse supply chains that have got a bit of resilience? Yes, we do. So, of course, we have to have rail. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I completely agree. There's so much more that we could talk about around this subject. That feels like it's kind of a second episode. Um, we're, we're going to move into the um, the final part of this conversation, Maggie, which um, historically or traditionally, I've always asked my guest for a motivational quote. And I know you and I have talked and you don't do those. So my question to you is, when you need, as we all do, when you just need a bit of extra inspiration, a bit of extra motivation, kind of almost a bit like when we plug our mobile phones in because we need to get a a charge, what do you do? Where do you find that inspiration from? So I think from a, you know, from an RFG point of view, I'll pick up the phone to some of my, you know, favourite members, if you like, and I think we all know the people in our networks who are relentlessly positive despite everything or 
or the ones who've always got a plan you know what if we did that what if we didn't do that you know have you thought about this and so you know a quick ring round is always always a good place to start isn't it it when is problem. i think as well i've this sort of um mental model if i'm going if i'm going into something that's difficult um I like to sort of imagine that I'm, you know, at the top of a very tall and possibly slightly wobbly ladder reaching for something that's far away, you know, that right. that stretch. And I like to think about who's holding the ladder. Okay. You know, who's at, who's at the bottom and, yeah. you know, sort of visualising those those key people in your family or your friends your, in your network, professional yeah. or whatever, who are giving, you know, are literally there holding that ladder so that you can, you can reach that. And I sort of have that image in my head as I you know, go forward into whatever the difficult thing I've got to do is and try and visualise that. So that, that's a little t- tactic I use sometimes. Yes, yeah, I love it. And that is bringing some of your going right back to your current first, your early stages of your career around safety and risk assessment, Maggie. <laughs> so we yes. brought it full <laughs> circle. Yeah. You need yeah, yeah. a really strong person or people yeah. at the bottom to steady the ladder, which allows you to kind of reach a bit further than you'd be able to reach if you yeah. didn't have that support. So I think that is a lovely place to bring the conversation to a close um as always when i either listen to you on the speaker platform or when you and i have conversations i feel like there's so much more that i want to ask you and and this huge knowledge that you've got but also this fabulous way you have of organizing it all in your brain so when it comes out it makes absolutely perfect sense and even you know to somebody like me who isn't as experienced anywhere near as experienced in this industry or certainly in the freight aspect of the industry as you are so you've made it easy to understand really interesting three wishes um and i've loved i've absolutely loved hearing your career story um from the beginning to where you are now and we'll watch this space yeah thank you it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you nina thank Thank you you so much maggie My huge thanks to Maggie. I found that such an interesting conversation. I really hope you did too. Please do drop us a comment, a like, or subscribe to the podcast series so that you can listen in to more industry leaders who share their career stories and aspirations for the future.